This is Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for joining us. I'm Henry. And I'm Danny. We're here to tear apart recent stories about our nation's armed forces and our veterans. We hope you'll take a critical look at what's happening with our military. And we hope you enjoy the show. Now, let's get started. podcast on uh, whistleblowers and uh, whistleblower reprisal, stuff like that. But there was an article in the Daily Beast that I just had to talk about today. And uh, it comes from Kevin Polson. There was a report prepared on U.S. intelligence agencies at the tail end of 2017 that stated in all but one whistleblower case, the intelligence community sided against the whistleblower. The report was actually withheld by the intelligence community inspector after their inspectors general inspectors general office um, was the ones in charge of the report. The move concealed the finding that the agencies, including the CIA and NSA, were failing to protect intelligence workers who report waste, fraud, abuse, and, or criminality up the chain of command. They looked into 190 cases of alleged reprisal in six different agencies, and they uncovered a shocking pattern only in only one case did they find in favor of the whistleblower, and that case took 742 days to complete. Other cases remained open longer. One complaint from 2010 was still waiting for a ruling, but the framework was remarkably consistent. Over and over and over again, intelligence inspectors ruled that the agency was in the right and the whistleblowers were almost always wrong. Now, the report was that was near completion was following a six-month-long inspection run <clears throat> out of the Intelligence Community Inspector General Office. It was aborted in April by the new acting head of the office, Wayne Stone, following the discovery that one of the inspectors was himself a whistleblower in the middle of a federal lawsuit against the CIA, according to former Intelligence Community Inspector General officials. The affair cast serious doubt on the intelligence community's fundamental pact with the rank and file that workers who properly report perceived wrongdoing through approved channels won't lose their job or worse, their security clearance as a result. It also adds another layer of controversy to the intelligence community inspector general office already under fire for cuts to its whistleblower protection program and the unexpected sacking of the program's executive director in December. In a confirmation hearing last month, Trump's pick to head the watchdog agency acknowledged the apparent chaos in the office, citing a detailed expose by Foreign Policy magazine. My first objective as Inspector General, if confirmed, he said, will be to make sure that the Inspector General's house is in order. And that was a former Justice Department prosecutor, Michael Atkinson. None of this was supposed to happen. In 2012, then-President Obama signed a policy directive called PPD-19, which prohibits intelligence agencies from punishing workers who report abuses through approved government channels. The directive has been left in place under President Trump, probably not for long, but we'll, we'll see. Among other things, PP or, excuse, PPD-19 requires the Office of Inspector General at each agency to carry out an investigation when a worker complains he or she suffered retaliation for lawful whistleblowing. If, after investigating, the OIG finds no evidence of reprisal, the whistleblower can appeal up the intelligence community to their inspector general, who then can choose to impanel a three-person appellate board comprised of IGs from other agencies to review the case and either affirm or disagree with the OIG's decision. The investigators found that this basically never happened. Absent a review process which adheres to mandated legal standards for reprisal investigations, the protections remain weak with minimal chance for a complainant to have a reprisal complaint substantiated. From the data, it appears that PPD-19 had no impact on agency reprisal investigations or protections for complainants making protected disclosures. So uh, this, this is a really detailed and complicated topic, and it's, it's one that, that uh, Danny and I plan to break down here in, in, in a bit. We're always going to do one on whistleblowers and one on the intelligence community. Um, in the meantime, please uh, check in the show notes and check out Kevin's piece in the Daily Beast. Um, and 
this is not at all how federal government inspector generals are supposed to, it's, it's not supposed to happen this way. And the bigger question is, is why was it that President Obama was able to make this new directive, but at this end point, far, well, now a far, far end point of his presidency, it had zero impact. You know, one thing people don't often understand about the Obama presidency, I voted for him twice, you know, so full disclosure. Uh, the first time I was really excited about him, thought he was going to end the war in Iraq that I had just left and felt had been both illegal and ill-advised. The second time I voted for him, I guess as the lesser of two evils, at least in my own biased mind at the time. But the political right often points to President Obama as a socialist or this extreme liberal. And that's not backed up by evidence. Nope. The truth of the matter is, this is a fact what I'm about to tell you. More people were sentenced under the Espionage Act, which is a very controversial ruling from the First World War under President Barack Obama than any previous president. And more journalists were imprisoned and prosecuted for leaks under President Obama than any previous president. This shows that I hate to use the word deep state, but the power of the mainstream national security state continues whether there is a Democrat or a Republican in charge, whether there is a purported liberal or a purported conservative in charge. Whistleblowing is a vital component to the media's very important role as the accountability holder for the U.S. government, especially in areas of secrecy. There are genuinely reasonable criticisms that someone could throw at Edward Snowden and that someone could throw at, say, Chelsea Manning. But the question I always come back to and I will talk about in a future episode is whether or not the American people would have been party to that necessary information if it wasn't for the whistleblower, if it wasn't for the leaker. And too often, we would not have received vital information about our rights and our civil liberties being violated if it was not for the controversial figures like Edward Snowden, like Chelsea Manning, and in the past, like Daniel Ellsberg with the Pentagon Papers after Vietnam. And so these protections need to be put in place because the thing is, guys, if President Barack Obama was prosecuting, if his government, his Justice Department was prosecuting more journalists and more leakers than anyone else, what do you expect is going to happen under a guy like President Trump? It, it, this is dangerous stuff. Right. If we don't have proper accountability and proper systems in place to protect whistleblowers, even under liberal Democrat presidents or supposedly liberal Democrat presidents, then what are we going to expect from a person like President Donald Trump, who has much more authoritative tendencies and, uh, and much sort of more anti-mainstream media tendencies than Obama had before him? I, uh, I served with an NCO uh, a long time ago. His uh, Kuderna was his name, actually. And we were on uh, a mid-shift patrol at Yakima Training Center. It's this shitty, shitty place in central Washington where they send soldiers to do training, to do ranges and stuff. And he said to me that you can always have your loyalty or you can always have your integrity, but you can't always have both. And in... I know within the army this was true, and I'm, you know, based on what I've read about the intelligence community and other branches, disloyalty is punished so much more than violations of integrity. And by that I mean, you know, legitimate complaints, legitimate whistleblower things to be brought up. I had a first sergeant that actually we were in a gaggle, you know, like a Friday safety brief type thing, and um, she said it in front of all of us. It said, who complained IG about me? And I, I immediately lost almost all my respect for that first sergeant because there's a reason that we have these protections. There's a reason that we have these channels to go up on. And you would think, it's not true, but you would think senior leaders would want to know about fraud and abuse or would want to do the right thing when they found out. That's generally not the case. Yeah, totally agree. And uh, we're going to have to cover this in much more length uh, in, in a full pod episode where our main story is on whistleblowers. But, you know, just my last point would be, look, listeners, stay open minded about whistleblowers. Um, don't immediately uh, 
attack them or or consider them to be unpatriotic and don't also just assume that they're heroes either i mean usually it's much more gray and yeah. somewhere in the middle but just just keep an open mind get get the evidence first no, wait but... <clears throat> until the true story comes out the first report is usually wrong whether it's in combat or in journalism no but i'm i'm with you danny on that that the um if the american people can't learn a fact through normal channels that only leaves somebody to whistleblow. It is the only, it's the only remaining option. And, you know, when Edward Snowden did, they didn't, I, I believe they do have contractor protections now for those guys, but during that time, he didn't. There's a reason the dude lives in Russia after what he did. Now, I'm not, I'm not advocating for him specifically. Like Danny said, there's a lot of gray in there. There's no, not much black and white when it comes to a whistleblower. But the fact of the matter is, is he could not say those things to anyone as he made his way up his chain, and he was a civilian contractor, to let people know about it. So, yes, please keep an open mind about those guys. They, uh, to me, traitor is way too simplistic of a, of a thought, even if you do believe that they actually betrayed our nation. So I have a, uh, I have a something a little different for us today. I got, uh, I've got my 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 tablet here set up to play a couple audio clips, and I recently started getting emails from the House Armed Services Committee. And the first thing I decided to, uh, or hold on, um, I found an article that quoted something from a committee meeting of theirs by a former brigade commander of mine, and he is now the IG for the Army. He's uh, Lieutenant General David Quantock, and mm. he gave me an Army Commendation Medal in July 2004. I, I, was, I was Brigade Soldier of the Month um, during that time, so I've heard and see this man talk a lot, and it, it, um, Danny, I'd really like to get your opinion on some of the things he said as far as leadership, um, but specifically they were there about whistleblowers and whistleblower reprisal. And discussing about whether or not there should be a civilian administrator or a group of civilian administrators that's separate from the UCMJ, the Uniform Code of Military Justice, so that there's that extra layer of protection if somebody does whistleblow. Yeah, I really, I mean, I, I really agree with that. And uh, I'm looking forward to hearing some of these clips. The article keyed up on General Quantock making a comment about that the army or the military rather crushes general officers, but it didn't give any more context as to why he said that. They were talking about whistleblowers and cases of whistleblower reprisal. And so what he did is he, he mentioned that yes, that the military does crush generals, that, you know, that a, a general is responsible for so much more than most people would understand that they are, and that it is drilled into them, and I'm sure you can attest to this, Danny, from day one, all of the different briefings about how you use your government credit card, about the kind of relationships you can have and the kind of relationships you can't. And so and he got to the end of his point. He said, but, you know, the question is, do we crush officers? Yes, we do, and absolutely we should. That there's no reason at that point, I think General Quantock has been serving in the Army for 37 years, there's no reason at that point in an officer's career that they shouldn't understand what the rules are. Um, Absolutely. So I do want to come back to this if I can get the sound thing working on it on a different episode. But um, the other thing, and I'd like to know your opinion about this, Danny, is that do you think there needs to be additional protections in that way? You know, that, that generally when, an, when a general officer is reprimanded or court-martialed, it's other generals that are making those decisions. And does, do you think there needs to be changes in that system? So I'm in favor of outside agencies, nonpartisan outside agencies, taking a look at generals, taking a look at things like sexual assaults, like we talked about. Uh, very unpopular in the military to say what I just said. And, and I'll tell you, though, why I think that. I have found that although generals are 
held responsible for everything that does or does not happen under their command. They're very rarely punished in any serious way. They're usually allowed to retire at the current rank uh, with full benefits, and they are very rarely ever busted down or uh, prosecuted by the UCMJ. The General Officers Club is just that. It's an old boys club. Yep. It's a cigar. It's a cigar chomping old boys club. How many of our listeners know who picks our generals? Well, I'll tell you who. Other generals. The generals sit around and pick among the colonels to see who will join their ranks as generals. That is how we choose general officers. Yeah, Congress has to sign off on it, but that's a rubber stamp, quite frankly. You think most of our congressmen and senators really know the colonels in the army? Of course they don't. The system of promotion for generals, where you pick your own, is a formula for nepotism and cronyism and sycophancy, not for accountability. See, when there's not an outside entity taking a look, having a review board or whatever you want to call it, it's very unlikely that generals are really going to hold one another accountable. Look, if a captain does something wrong, they'll put him out on the street with his eight years or 10 years of service. But generals, unless they commit the most egregious crimes, are very rarely held accountable. And that does concern me. One other thing I wanna say about general officers. There aren't any schools teaching you how to be a three or four star general. And then we're surprised when many of our generals don't think strategically. When we feel, they think tactically, they think like platoon leaders, they think like captains. That's because most of our schools in the military are meant to train captains to be majors and to train majors to be colonels, all right? Very few of our schools actually teach strategy at any deep level. So it's it's very difficult for generals to be held accountable for the very intense sort of political, military, civil society missions that they get in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. And how can we hold them accountable for failures in generalship when we're not even really teaching generalship? Now, I'm not 100% positive how to do that. Maybe we got to bring some retired generals back to teach in some of these schools. I know we do that to some extent already. But yeah, I, I am in favor of outside agencies taking a look at the accountability of generals. I don't necessarily trust senior military leaders to discipline one another because too many times, you know, they've gotten a pass. Look at Abu Ghraib. There was a one-star female general who got in trouble for what went on at Abu Ghraib, which is a higher rank than usual. But where was where was the vast majority of the blame? Where did it fall? I'll tell you where it fell. On National Guard E4s and E5s. Yep. That's that's an old story. That's typically how it's done. And uh, and I and I can't help but think that partly it's the general's old boys club, the flag officer old boys club, you know, in the Navy or in the Air Force. Uh, that protects these people. So no, I'm, I'm not opposed to an outside agency. We have to look long and hard at what that would look like, but I think there has to be more accountability uh, for the senior officers who have failed to bring a single one of our wars to an effective conclusion so far. doesn't make them bad guys. It makes them ineffective or it makes the missions they've been given unwinnable or some combination of the two. But I think we have to take a hard look at both those things. And there, uh, I go back to uh, General Shinseki and the stuff that he said before the Iraq invasion, and I don't know how quickly it was, but very quickly he lost his position as chief of staff and ended up retiring. That is the price for being that honest, if especially when the rest of the force is pointed in a different direction. Right. Well, too, too few of our general officers speak out and give honest uh, Absolutely. assessments. Oh, yeah. uh, I just wrote an article in anywar.com. Check it out. It's called uh, uh, How Our Generals Fail Their Soldiers in America um, at anywar.com. And uh, I'll provide a link on the on the site. I think, I think I've already um, posted it on the uh, Force on Hill webpage, but well, uh, Facebook page. But, uh, you know, the few general officers who have spoken out against their secretary of defense or, or critique the war plans like General Shinseki did back in 2003, they're, they're usually hastily retired and, and quietly pushed away because the last thing that most presidential administrations want is public military dissent. So they'd rather just sort of shuffle those guys into a quiet retirement yep. rather than causing any big scene. And that's another reason why sometimes you don't see discipline on uh, generals to the same extent, because w- what they want to do with dissenting generals, the few who exist, there's very few, yeah. but they, what they want to do is they want to shuffle them away very quietly. And that's what they did with Shinseki. All right, guys, we're going to start uh, talking about nuclear weapons. And uh, 
have an article here. Spe speaking of speaking of uh, fun topics and lighthearted <laughs> stuff, let's talk about the potential destruction of the planet. Sorry. Yes, sorry. yes, yes. It's super fun to talk about. All right, guys, we're going to start uh, talking about nuclear weapons. And uh, I have an article here. Spe speaking of speaking of uh, fun topics and lighthearted <laughs> stuff, let's talk about the potential destruction of the planet. Sorry. Yes, sorry. yes, yes. It's super fun to talk about. Um, this is from uh, Bill Law at uh, Middle East Eye. There are currently five major nations that are competing to bid on a set of two nuclear reactors for Saudi Arabia. It's estimated that within 20 years, they could have as many as 16 and be producing um, 18 gigawatts a day, enough to power about 25% of their country. Now, for President Trump, um, securing contracts, uh, this is from, directly from the article, uh, would help his election promise to bail out America's ailing nuclear industry and would, without doubt, be used to burnish his self-proclaimed image as a great dealmaker. The only question that really matters at this stage is the demand by the Saudis to be allowed to enrich uranium and reprocess spent fuel, processes that are necessary to develop their own nuclear weapons. Now, there's an agreement from the 1954 U.S. Atomic Energy Act, and it's called the 123 Agreement. And basically, our country makes a deal with a, a, a third, a different country, it doesn't really matter which one. And we offer to design and sometimes even do the construction of a new nuclear reactor under the auspices that they can never use any of the supplied uranium to be enriched to make into weapons. And, it, you know, we've done it with, with, uh, with a few countries. Um, now, Trump has already shown uh, in, in my, uh, a pretty reckless disregard for decades of caution on nuclear affairs. Um, most publicly in his Twitter taunts of North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un. So it's unlikely that he or his energy secretary have given much thought to the 123 agreement. The Saudis are already irked that the Iran, Iran nuclear deal allows the Iranians to repossess and enrich, though at levels far below what is needed to build a bomb. However, both Trump and the Saudis are deeply suspicious of the Iranians. Uh, who knew that, right? and believe that they are already in violation and moving towards nuclear weapons. In the unlikely event that the Americans decide to stick to the 123 agreement, the Saudis can simply turn to other countries. Vladimir Putin from Russia would relish the opportunity to build reactors with state-owned Rostam. Um, the company signed a $21 billion deal with Egypt in December last year, having already clinched a $10 billion deal with Jordan in 2015. So it troubles all around them, but there's very, one very worrying downside to the deal. The Iranians, who are already under threat from Trump, would see the sale of U.S. nuclear reactors without the 123 agreement as both a provocation and an affirmation that President Trump does indeed intend to tear up the deal. A, a deal which, by the way, uh, almost every U.S. intelligence agency has come out and said the Iranians are following, that they yeah. are they are following to the letter of the law this deal, and yet we're getting ready to pull out of it when they are in compliance. Yes, they're in, in complete compliance, and it's it's advantageous to them to, to want to stay with the deal. So, But I can't wrap my mind around uh, Trump tossing it out. I mean, clearly the man's – he does what he wants, with, like with the whole tariffs thing this last week. But – at what point, you know, you mentioned sober strategy. When is, you know, Madison and Tillerson going to sit him down and say, no, you know, because it, it, it just, it, I, I know that they don't. Nobody tells Trump to do anything. Um, well, and if he does, it's hard to tell if he listens. Exactly, exactly. Um, the article discussed one other thing I wanted to mention is that Pakistan has an off-the-shelf nuclear weapon deal with Saudi Arabia. Um, Saudi Arabia was responsible for helping fund the program that um, helped Pakistan become nuclear weapon capable. And so in the event that Iran ever did get a nuclear weapon, or if they were well on their way to, that Pakistan would provide nuclear warheads to Saudi Arabia. That's fucking terrifying. Terrifying. It's, it's an unofficial deal, what you're talking about, but it's largely uh, considered to be an accurate one. Some people have called Pakistan's nuclear arsenal, some people in the region, uh, an Islamic bomb. 
meaning uh, Sunni Islamic bombs specifically, uh, meaning that the, the Pakistani arsenal is seen by many Muslims as something to be proud of because they're the only majority uh, Muslim nation that has uh, that has a, a nuclear weapon. And so yeah. what you mentioned is true. Uh, the Saudis who helped finance a lot of what goes on in Pakistan's military, uh, at least since the 1970s, the understanding is that if Iran were ever to go towards actual enrichment or, or, or you know, development of a bomb, that the Pakistanis might provide one to the Saudis in order to balance that, which keep in mind, this would be a new Cold War era rivalry uh, in the Middle East between states that are far from stable and uh, something that we most certainly want to avoid. Um, if we push Iran towards creating a bomb, which I would argue pulling out of this deal would only push them to be more likely to uh, to develop weapons out of self-preservation, which is why Iran has largely looked for it in the first place, uh, we are setting ourselves up for a situation where the Saudis might very well go to the Pakistanis and say, hey, let us get a nuclear warhead. And then what? Then it's one bad mistake away from nuclear war. Yep, exactly. Um, so that uh, with, with, with that wonderful story, we lead right into our main topic for today about U.S. nuclear weapons policy. You know, this is a frightening topic for an episode. Um, a couple of things make it scary. The first one is that nuclear weapons could absolutely destroy the world and human life within it. Uh, the second one is I think most Americans have very little knowledge about our nuclear, nuclear arsenal and very little knowledge about the other countries that have nuclear weapons and why they have them, what they might use them for. I want to review the nine countries. There are nine, there's over 200 countries in the world. Nine of them have nuclear weapons as of, as of today. The first five are the victors from World War II, the five countries that sit atop the UN Security Council. We're talking the United States, Russia, China, France, and England, Great Britain. Uh, in that order, the number of nuclear weapons they have. Russia and America, we, we, we go back and forth between who has more warheads. The Russians might actually have more warheads, uh, although not necessarily more delivery systems follow. After that, it's China. After that, it's France. After that, it's the United Kingdom by most uh, unclassified assessments or estimates. All right, what about the other two? All right, so that's five. The next two are Pakistan and India. Pakistan and India scare me because they are in a standoff. They hate one another. They have fought several wars against one another since their independence in 1947, and they are always uh, right on the verge of warfare. And each of them has a pretty significant and growing arsenal that's aimed directly at one another's capitals. The next two are what I would call the rogue states. That's a title we like to use in our national security lingo, the rogue states. North Korea, which everyone in America would agree is a rogue state. And here's the other one. This is going to get me in trouble. Israel. Israel has nuclear weapons, and they are out of compliance with the Non-Proliferation Treaty, and they develop nuclear weapons secretly uh, with U.S. acquiescence, and in, I would argue have destabilized the Middle East further by having those nuclear weapons. There's a hypocrisy here, isn't there? We turn a blind eye to Israel developing nuclear weapons, and we sign a treaty with India to share nuclear technology, because we're pretty friendly with Israel, and we're pretty friendly with India, and yet we make North Korea into a supervillain. And don't get me wrong, Kim Jong-un is, is not a, a positive actor. He's no, he's no friend of the United States. But we make him into a supervillain, and we make Iran, who we purportedly wants to the into the supervillains. But we don't look at the hypocrisy of the fact that we allow two of our allies, India and Israel, to have nuclear weapons with no questions asked. We knew Israel was developing a nuclear bomb. They got most of their technology from France in the late 1950s. And by the late 1960s in the Nixon administration, it was uh, largely understood they developed nuclear weapons. I've read some of the newly declassified documents from the Nixon administration where Kissinger and Nixon are talking about this. And there was never any talk of stopping the Israelis from developing a nuclear weapon. For all our talk of non-proliferation and not wanting more countries to have nuclear weapons, we allowed the Israelis to have nuclear weapons. And we looked the other way. And in the George W. Bush administration, we signed the nuclear pact with the Indians to share nuclear technology and energy, even though they, too, went against our stated policy of nuclear non-proliferation. There's a lot of problems with U.S. nuclear policy. And um, the first thing I think we need to talk about is the triad. 
Henry, do you want to just take us through the basics of the nuclear triad? So, so people can understand where do our nuclear weapons come from? So the triad um, refers to our uh, the, the three different methods of delivery we have for our nuclear weapons. And air, which is our, our heavy bombers, sea, which is our submarine-launched uh, ballistic missiles, and then land, which are our ICBMs, our big ones, our international or, uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles. And it's important to note here that when we're talking about nuclear weapons, there's, there's our stockpiles here at home, and then there's what is actually forward deployed for us to be able to use. So essentially rounds actually in the chamber versus ones that are not, not in the gun, to, to make it a little simpler. Um, we had negotiated the New START II treaty when President Obama was in office. But the reality of that treaty is that it only impacts forward-deployed weapons and the number that a country can have forward-deployed. In essence, you can put as many bullets or a certain number of bullets into the guns, but you can have as many rounds left over behind. Um, but essentially, yeah, that's, that's pretty much the breakdown of it. Yeah, so the triad is interesting. I mean, the idea of the triad, of course, is to make sure that we have... Um sort of overlapping capabilities and redundancy in our nuclear weapons. And there's something to be said for that, okay? Because one of the fears in the Cold War was that Russia would be able to provide a first strike that would take out our nuclear forces so we couldn't retaliate. And specifically, the submarine-launched ballistic missiles uh, made that difficult. So they're, they're, the submarines are very hard to track, and therefore it's very difficult to uh, attack them with a preemptive nuclear strike. But what's interesting is I, I can't help but wonder how much of that redundancy is maybe no longer necessary. Uh, I agree. Every service wants some part of the nuclear triad, except for the Army, which no longer has any. They used to. Uh, because there's, there's funding reasons. That is, it behooves an, uh, the Air Force and the Navy to both want some control of the nuclear arsenal because there's a lot of money being put into this. I remember Barack Obama even uh, put into place like a $1.3 trillion modernization of our nuclear weapon, which is, uh, which is happening. Okay. Do we really need manned bombers to fly to Russia or to China in order to hit them with nuclear weapons? No. It seems to me that there is uh, more room for human error. With these manned bombers, when we already have the redundancy of the ICBMs, land-based nuclear weapons, as well as the uh, submarine-launched ballistic missiles. If I if I remember correctly, when I was a kid, I remember I, I was fascinated by nuclear weapons, and ICBMs can fly at Mach 20, and they actually, depending on the target, leave the atmosphere, and then other warheads eject. So that's that's the kind of the kind of thing we're talking about here. So the idea, you know, like you said, that the Bombers can't compete with that. They can't. They don't have the equipment. You know, a B a B2 could not do it. Do it in the same way. So, right, right. So I want to talk about one other thing here in uh, nuclear policy, and that's the inflation of threats. Um, as you know, I I think that many of our kind of threat assessments are alarmist, specifically as they have to do with Russia and China, but also with North Korea and Iran. American politicians seem to act as though if Iran or, New or North Korea have nuclear weapons, and of course North Korea already does, that they're suicidal and they're irrational. And that of course they would use nuclear weapons. Of course they would launch a nuke at Israel or launch a nuke at LA, which sort of dehumanizes the people and the, and the leaders of those countries because it, is, it assumes a suicidal irrationality. With the amount of nuclear weapons that the United States has in its triad throughout the world, forward deployed, if North Korea was to send a nuke towards Los Angeles or towards Tokyo, North Korea would cease to exist within minutes. Same, same for Iran. Why do we assume that the Israelis are rational and won't use their nuclear weapons, but we assume that if Iran had even one bomb, they would almost certainly nuke Jerusalem or Tel Aviv? Does it have something to do with the color of the skin of the Israelis? Did it have something to do with the religion of the Israelis being Judaism, which is linked to Judeo-Christian values? And somehow we're supposed to believe that North Koreans and Iranians are, are by their very nature irrational? 
I'm not saying I want more nuclear proliferation. I do not want that. But what I want is some consistency and some reasonable assessments of the threat. Next thing I want to talk about is the role of the U.S. arsenal and its allies. So one reason given for why the United States maintains such an enormous nuclear arsenal after all this time, after the Cold War is purportedly over, is because when the United States places a nuclear umbrella over our allies, so we're thinking South Korea, Japan, the Philippines, and then all of Western Europe, that that avoids or decreases the motivation for other countries to proliferate, so for other countries to get nuclear weapons. And there's something to be said for that. I think we're better off without more countries getting nuclear weapons. Nine is enough. Nine is too many. Yes, I wish is. no one had. And there's something to be said for if you provide guarantees to your allies that you will come to their aid in a nuclear war, that you will retaliate with your nuclear weapons, that it'll, it'll keep them from developing their own. Specifically, we're worried about Germany getting its own, perhaps Poland getting its own. Japan and South Korea, and that's great. But what happens when you push your nuclear umbrella even further to more marginal allies, like Latvia? Latvia, which most Americans can't find on a map and may never have heard of, touches the Soviet Union, the old Soviet Union, used to be part of the old Soviet Union, it touches Russia today. And under our NATO commitments to this ally, we have to fight all-out war in defense of Latvia, up to and including nuclear war with Russia. The question is, would we actually do that if Russia would have made Latvia? I think the answer to that is no. And should we actually do that and uphold our commitments to the Latvians? I would argue once again, no. If the answer to both those questions is no, then we have to rethink the idea of spreading the American nuclear umbrella over so many allies. Because at a certain point, we're putting the entire world on just like a hair trigger away from nuclear warfare. And that, and that really concerns me. Which brings us kind of to this next point, which I, I think you want to talk about as well, of tactical nuclear weapons, this idea of, of tactical nuclear weapons. So yeah. let me just describe what that is. We've got strategic nuclear weapons. That's like the ICBMs and the massive missiles from our submarine-launched ballistic missiles. But then there's tactical nuclear weapons. These are the ones that don't have quite the same range or quite the same payload. And there's a paradox, which is, Non-strategic nuclear weapons are actually considered more dangerous and more likely to be used than the strategic nuclear weapons. We have such a huge payload. And so there's actually been treaties in the past between the United States and Russia to limit our number of tactical nuclear weapons because the fear is that there'll be a, um, there'll be a motivation or a temptation to use these tactical nuclear weapons because, well, they're not really big nukes. Of course, the question is, if Russia fired a tactical nuclear weapon that you know, wiped out a small city in Europe or wiped out an entire American army base in Germany, can we really guarantee that the United States wouldn't immediately retaliate with strategic nuclear weapons against Russia's cities? Or that the, the same might not be true in the reverse? It just seems utterly absurd. Yeah, the, the, the logic that it would work better that – and I, I, I don't know if that's just a way to, to – minimize it for ordinary people maybe this this weapon isn't going to hurt as much which it, it, there's there's not that much of a difference they try to draw this very clear line between strategic and tra tactical ones and yeah there's a bit of a size difference but the impact to the world and to the place that it's used there is no difference um so you had mentioned about the about the tactical ones i i saw something about that they're developing one to be a sea-launched ballistic missile, um, based on the belief, like you mentioned, that in any conflict with Russia on NATO's eastern flank, the Russians could or might use a tactical nuclear weapon early on to compensate for their relative weakness in, in conventional arms. And, and it's exactly what you painted. You know, what, what does America do at that point? Are we, we're, I don't feel we're justified in, in a direct response um, you know, and it just, it just seems like more mayhem, more death and destruction, but in a smaller package that somehow Trump can sell a little easier. I think, that, I think that, I think that's kind of the thinking about it, at least for him. 
Well, you, you know, I'm glad you brought that up. So, so the Russian strategy that you're talking about, or the Russian tactic, is called uh, escalate to de-escalate, and uh, it's been thrown around in uh, Russian strategic thinking recently. The idea being that because the United States has pushed NATO all the way to the borders of Russia and encircled the Russians with nuclear and conventional forces, that Russia has said, well, the only strategy, the only real strength we have is the fact that we have the second largest nuclear arsenal in the world. And so their threat towards us, their threat back at NATO, their counter threat is we will fire, we will, we will use small nuclear weapons in order to, like you said, make up for our weaknesses in conventional warfare. Because let's remember, Russia has an economy the size of Italy. So they, there are limitations to how big of a military they can build. Yeah, yeah. They feel surrounded by NATO because they are, because we went against promises made in 1990 and 91, and we've decided to expand NATO to the east, even though George H.W. Bush promised Gorbachev he would not do that. We've done that. And so it's there's two ways to look at Russia's threat of escalate to de-escalate. What they mean by that is they're going to escalate the war by dropping a small nuke, which will force us to back off and therefore de-escalate the situation. That is highly flawed thinking on the part of the Russians. Oh, God, yes. All right, it, it worries me, especially with President Trump at the helm. But you can also understand where they're coming from because they feel surrounded. I, I think it speaks to what really my last point on nuclear weapons, which is the very absurdity of the whole concept of nuclear strategy. I mean... Nuclear strategy used to be an entire field of study during the Cold War, which is itself absurd. People wrote entire books about this, about, well, how should we respond to the Russians in terms of nukes? Should we threaten them? Is that going to make us safer? Should we, should we say we won't use them first, or should we not say that? And there used to be entire academics who like, spent their career studying nuclear strategy. And the problem is, just like President Trump with almost everything, they looked at it as like a schoolyard bully analogy. But they're talking about the fate of the entire world. Part of the absurdity of the whole concept of nuclear strategy is that in the United States, the president has almost complete unilateral control over the nuclear arsenal, meaning he could launch nuclear warfare on his own with very little check or balance. And with an increasingly imperial presidency and executive power being uh, strengthened year after year, this is incredibly scary. Because let's say you liked Obama and you trusted him. You still don't want to give him additional executive power because you don't know who the next guy is going to be. It might be a Trump. And if you're a Republican, you think Trump's great and you trust him with the nuclear arsenal, first of all, you're a fucking lunatic. But second of all, if you do think that's true, you're not going to like it when the next Democrat wins, right? So it should be a nonpartisan issue. The founders who wrote our Constitution, they thought Congress would have the unilateral authority to declare war. They didn't realize presidents were going to take that upon themselves. They couldn't foresee a world with nuclear weapons. So that's why there's no talk of nuclear weapons in the Constitution. The founding fathers of the 1700s would be appalled by nuclear strategy because they would be appalled by the lack of checks and balances on the American president. The fact that we can trust one human being with the ability to destroy the world three or four times over is itself extremely scary. This is what I'll say about nuclear weapons before we talk about the singular, the only two uses of nuclear weapons. I want to say this. We're all worried about Iran. We're worried about terrorism. We're worried about al-Qaeda. We're about ISIS. There are only two true existential threats to the United States and to the planet. There's two. This is my theory, and I think it can be backed up. Number one is nuclear winter, which is so many nuclear weapons fired that the atmosphere becomes clouded with ash and residue. And the sun is no longer able to get through. And therefore, over time, human life completely goes away. It's another extinction. Okay, this is a scientific theory behind this. So that's the first true existential threat. The second one is climate change. And currently, we have a president, currently we have an administration in place that wants to escalate nuclear strategy and wants to ignore climate change, but is obsessed with immigrants and is obsessed with terrorism. Meanwhile, keep in mind the only two true existential threats to the world are nuclear winter and climate change. Keep that in mind. So with regard to nuclear strategy, it, to me, it, it just looks like it's mostly made up. I mean, again, it, I mean, there's, we, we have, you know, we have detailed ways that we would end up using them, but since it's, it's since 45, none of them have been used. 
And like you said, I just, you know, let, let's say they did. Let's say they used, Trump used a tactical nuke uh, on Russia, for instance. What would be the exacerbation then to our climate change in terms of just that one nuke, just that one thing? Nagasaki and Hiroshima, we're still feeling effects of them today. If you go there and you can see that shit still doesn't grow, you know, it, it, it's, um, but, but back to what you were mentioning about that all this power is vested in one person, even if, like you said, it doesn't matter the administration, you, that should this power be centered in one person? And one, one person is able to say, and they're able to discount anything comes across, generals, whatever it is, and we're doing this. And they have right now the legal authority to do it. You know, I mean, we, we have our, what was it, 30 days or 60 days that Trump has to report to Congress if something, you know, if, if there's a new deployment of troops or anything. Yeah, the War Powers Act, right. But it doesn't, it doesn't um, you know, how many nukes could we fire in 60 days? You know, or in that, 30 minutes. Exactly, exactly. Um, like you said, that um, with one one strike on America, the the attacking country is gone. It's just it's just you know Russia. We we have a, a budget that's seven times what Russia's military budget is. Just dust on the earth. That that's what that would be it. But what is the actual strategy? How does this legitimately make us more safe? And it, the bottom line is it doesn't. It doesn't. No, it's make humanity. Us safe. Just. To steal from Eisenhower, uh, living on the nuclear brink the way we did throughout the Cold War and the way that we are still living on the nuclear brink, especially with the way the new national defense strategy paints the Chinese and the Russians as existential threats, living on the nuclear brink is no is not living at all. It's humanity hanging from a cross of iron, to steal from Eisenhower's phrase, and it's, it's absolutely frightening. And I think one of the things we wanted to sort of end on is how is the United States viewed in the rest of the world when it comes to nuclear weapons. And we like to think, well, of course we would never use nuclear weapons. Of course we only have them to protect ourselves and protect our allies. But Henry, how does the rest of the world see that? It's terrifying as, as wondering what's going to be the thing, what's going to be the event that politicians can put in line and say this was the reason. But if we go back to... Hiroshima and Nagasaki, looking at it historically, there was never a military or strategic need to bomb either of those cities. It was, for lack of a better way to put it, simply a demonstration of American power. And when, I don't, I think it was uh, 200,000 in Hiroshima and 100,000 in Nagasaki, something like that. But Again, what's the what's the point other than extermination? Having the, the myth, myth, yeah, it's just it. Go ahead, sorry. The the myth of Hiroshima and Nagasaki is that we had we had to drop those two nuclear bombs on those civilians, women and children mostly, because the men were mostly on the front line. So yep. it was old yep. men, and then women and children, wiped out, wiped out in a flash. And the myth is we had to do that because if we didn't do that, the Japanese, being so crazy, they would have never surrendered, and we would have had to invade with American military force and a million Americans would have died and a million Japanese would have died in yes. the war, right? That's the myth. It is. The I've reality. Many times, look, yeah. Look at a, there's a, there's a book by John Dower about this that, that really just, just deflates this whole myth. The reality is as follows. Japan was surrounded. They were isolated by the American Navy and they couldn't get any supplies and they could have been essentially starved out. They were already defeated militarily. And Russia. The second, the second fact is the Japanese reached out to Russia weeks before we dropped the nuclear weapons in order to put out some feelers for peace. They knew they were beat. Yep. Yes, they were fighting with an enormous amount of enthusiasm and extremism on the islands like Iwo Jima and Okinawa. But they had already reached out to the Russians to start peace talks at the United States. And we still dropped those two bombs. And when we didn't hear back, we didn't get a surrender after Hiroshima, just a few days later, we dropped another one on Nagasaki, knowing what it did to women and children. And this is what I want to say about that. All this talk about nuclear non-proliferation, all this talk about how dare we let North Korea have nuclear weapons, all this talk about how dare Iran even think about building its own nuclear weapons. Walk a mile in the shoes of the rest of the world, and I'll tell you what they're thinking. They're thinking, you hypocrites. 
Only one country has ever dropped a nuclear weapon on the head of human beings. And that's the United States in 1945. And here we are lecturing everyone else on whether or not they should build on nuclear weapons. And I don't want them to have nuclear weapons. I don't want nuclear weapons to proliferate. I want us to decrease our stocks along with the Russians, along with the Chinese. But understand again the way America looks in the rest of the world. Understand why other countries see us as the greatest threat to human peace. We are the only country that has ever slaughtered hundreds of thousands of people from the sky with a nuclear weapon. And I don't think we could talk about this or end this on any better note than to remind ourselves of that and to just see the world through the eyes of our adversaries. I, uh, I posted something on Facebook recently, or I think it was Twitter actually, and that if you really take a broad look at American military strategy, and the nukes are absolutely part and parcel of it, we go to other countries to enact our whatever military objectives might be because we believe we're right. That is the, the single biggest thing, is that we believe in American rightness, in American morality, if you want to call it that, more so than sober strategy, more so than the lives of the people that we eliminate. Absolutely. Um, this is a really, really scary and sort of sobering episode that we've done today. But um, I want you to keep it in mind. I want you to keep in mind what the two real existential threats to the world are, and I want you to keep in mind the way we look and the sort of hypocrisy that we've brought upon ourselves in nuclear strategy as we consider these things. So when you listen to President Trump talk about nuclear weapons or when you read about the nuclear modernization going on, take a critical eye to it. Really dissect it and think critically. What are we doing? What does it even mean to have a nuclear strategy when any use of nuclear weapons could potentially end human life? cause the extinction of human life on the planet because violence begets violence. And I would argue that nuclear violence will only beget more nuclear violence. And we have to absolutely have a no first strike policy. And we have to absolutely do everything we can to work with our allies and even work with our adversaries to decrease the stocks of nuclear weapons because every nuclear weapon on this planet is a threat to human existence. I'm good if you are, brother. Yeah. Yeah, sounds good. That's a good ending. So we have we have two hours and thirty one minutes of material right now. <laughs>